Peter 4, the first six verses. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, but they malign you. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they will live in the spirit according to the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we again come to you and, and just want to hear you and respond to you in faith and obedience, Lord, to all that you've said. We ask for understanding and that your spirit would lead us into all that is true and good and right. And we would hear, and Lord, and give our amen to all that you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, you can pray for Patsy this week. Um, we have two of our grandchildren staying with us, and I'm leaving today for Colorado. And so Patsy has Rockham and Sockham all by herself. They're good kids, but I'm telling you, they, they, they are just active and very, very physical. Um, it's amazing. We were worn out just watching them yesterday. Um, one of them, I don't remember if it was Rockham or Sockham, was screaming this morning, and they're not, that's not really their names. It's Charles and Dawson. But um, <laughs> Charles was screaming, and, and so I went running into the living room to see what was up, and Dawson had two fistfuls of hair. And he is pulling for everything he's worth. And Patsy had just told me that, that back at home, I don't know whether it was in Sunday school or where, but he had just pulled two full fistfuls of hair out of some other kid's head. And he's got a good grip, and he's strong. So I rescued Charles, and I, have, um, I am guilty of, for the first time in my grandparenting life, spanking one of my grandchildren. So Dawson got a little whop. And so then I remembered, I've done this before. And usually when one kid is mad at the other one, it's because the other one did something, especially when it's little brother mad at big brother. And so I asked Charles, I said, what happened? Did you take that little horse that he was riding from your brother? I did. <laughs> okay. Now, being around these two kids, I know that because they're both very physical, they both basically need to wake up in the morning prepared for battle. <laughs> it's going to happen. Sooner or, day, sooner or later, probably sooner than later, they are, they are going to, one of them is going to have to defend himself from the other one. This is a passage about being prepared for battle. Arm yourselves, it says in the first verse. Now, um, when Peter says arm yourself, it's a bit interesting because you remember 
um, at the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Jesus, he was the one who was armed. And he pulled out his sword, and he tried to cut a man's head off. He missed. It was dark, and maybe the guy turned his head to the side, but all he got was an ear. And Jesus healed the ear, and he told Peter to put away his sword. But he was armed, and he was ready for conflict. And here he's saying, be armed. But he's not talking about swords. He's talking about purpose. Having in mind, when we wake up in the morning, of what life is about and being prepared for it, what it means to be a Christian, and what the consequences could very well mean for us on a day-to-day basis. Now, we're going to have, as Brian already said, a short meeting afterwards for anybody that's a member. And you can be in the meeting, even if you're not a member, you just can't vote. But about um, having better security for the church. Because a lot of the population at at his hill, the student body, is Canadian. and, And many of the Canadians, are at least the ones that come to Bible schools, are Mennonite in background, and Mennonites are pacifist. You know, uh, we have a bit of discussion from time to time about pacifism and, what, and whether or not a Christian should be armed. And that's going to be an ongoing discussion, and, 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 and everybody falls down on one side or the other on that. Um, but one thing I do know from Scripture, and we get this in part from 1 Peter, you remember back in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, it said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do what is right. Submit to your governing authorities. When it comes to arming yourself, um, and this is not a sermon on arming yourself in, in terms of weaponry, but just a little bit of an excursion. Um, There is an occasion in the Bible where the people of God, the Israelites, were in danger, all the Jewish people um, around the world, of being exterminated. Mass genocide. And that was in the story of Esther. And the king had had passed a decree. And according to the law of the Medes and Persians, when the king made a law, it could not be changed. Nobody could change it, even the king. It was written in stone. And the king had made a law saying that all the Jews were going to be exterminated. And now even the king can't undo his law. But what he can do is make another law. And he passed a law saying that the Jewish people could defend themselves. And they did. They did not take the initiative. They they were not the aggressors, but they were prepared to defend themselves, and they did. And they defeated their enemies soundly. They acted within the law, because the king said, you have the right to defend yourself. And so maybe it's a a bad analogy or, 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 or comparison, but it does seem to me that when our governing authorities tell us that we have the right to defend ourselves, we are not acting contrary to the governing authorities. And, and we can legally defend ourselves. That may not always be the case, and that'll be another debate. Canada, going back to them, I've been told by more than one person that the government has completely taken away the right of self-defense in Canada. And so they're having to, to wrestle with a whole different thing. Is it, should I disobey government to defend myself and my family? 
We're not having to face that in this country at this time. Um, we still, by our government, have the right to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves. But Peter is not talking about that kind of taking up arms. He says, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Now, grammatically here, it's pretty clear he's talking about arm yourselves with the purpose of suffering in the flesh. So if I were to, were to say to you, which one did Jesus come to do? Did Jesus come into this world to suffer, or did he come into this world to do the will of God? Which one? It's not an either or, is it? It's both. He came to do the will of God, and he came to suffer and die. It's not either or. But which was first for Jesus? Was his first concern to suffer, or was his first concern the will of God? So it was the will of God. And so though grammatically Peter is saying here, arm yourselves in the flesh with the same purpose that Jesus had to suffer in the flesh, we know that wasn't Christ's first purpose. It'd be like, if you're going to build a house, you have to count the cost of building that house before you ever start. But the purpose, the first purpose, is not counting the cost. That's part of it. You have to count the cost. But your first purpose is to build a home. And in the process of building a home, you also have to count the cost. Jesus' first purpose was to obey the Father. But in the process of obeying the Father, he knew that it was going to cost him that he was going to suffer. And so both things were there. But the primary motivation of Christ was not suffering. I think it's an important point to make because some Christians wake up in the morning and just say, well, today I'm going to suffer. That's not a good way to live, is it? It may be true, but God doesn't want us to live with, with that being the first thing on our mind. The first thing on our mind should be, it's your day, Lord, and I'm your servant. Whatever you have is what I want. Whatever you bring my way, I will receive. If that's great joy, thank you. If it's great suffering, thank you. Your will is my will. Your will be done. That's to be the mindset of those who have the mind of Christ. We get that from Philippians chapter 2, remember? Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And yet it involves suffering, but the mind of Christ in Philippians 2 was the will of the Father. The Father said, I want you to become a man. And Jesus said, I'll become a man. The Father said, I want you to, to humble yourself. And Jesus says, I'll humble myself. The Father said, I want you to die on a cross. And Jesus was obedient even to dying on a cross. But the whole thing governing Jesus was not suffering. It was the will of the Father. That was the main thing. And it has to be the main thing for you and I as well. Father, what is your will? So when we look backward, back in 1 Peter, we see that I think this is the case. Chapter 3, verse 18 seems to be the, the statement that is really the, the, the antecedent to what Peter is saying here in chapter 4. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. 
So he didn't die and suffer just for the point of suffering, but there was a purpose in mind to bring us to God. And then in, in chapter 2, in verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose. So another purpose statement. You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Not just an example of suffering, but he says, who committed no sin, nor is any deceit, deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Why not? Entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That was the thing that was motivating Jesus. He suffered, but his motivation was not suffering. His motivation was the will of the Father. Entrusting himself to who, him who judges righteously. And if the Father wanted him to suffer, then he would suffer. If I wake up in the morning saying, today I'm going to suffer, and I live my Christian life like that every day, I can't imagine not becoming very cynical and suspicious, maybe a bit fearful. You know, Paul, after he'd been traveling for some time and he was beat up in one city and beat up in another city and left for dead because he was stoned in another city, by the time he came to Corinth, he wrote to them and said, you know, when I came to you, I came to you in fear and in trembling. Yeah, I would too. You know, when every single place you go, you get beat up. Man, I came to you in fear and trembling. But he went because of the will of the Father. And I don't believe that God wants me to face every new relationship in a spirit of fear and suspicion. This person may hurt me. But when you've been hurt a lot, that's easy to start having that kind of reaction. But it's not how the Lord wants us to live. On the other hand, when you've been beaten and attacked and left for dead, you could become more aggressive, become more defensive, start to develop a bit of a chip on your shoulder. Come after me and see what you get. Neither of those is right. But if suffering is our mindset and arming ourselves in preparation for it, that seems to be the two roads that we're tempted to go down. Fearful and suspicious or angry and defensive. Aggressive with a chip on our shoulder. But he's not telling us to wake up in the morning and think about suffering, but to think about the will of God. Surrender to him, responsive to him, and yes, that could very likely involve suffering. Jesus suffered. We shouldn't think that we will be exempt. And we should be prepared for it. I'm aware that when Peter went to Thessalonica and preached, Paul went to Thessalonica and preached, he was only there for three Sabbaths. And then he was driven away because of persecution. And yet when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he says, when I was with you, I told you these things would take place. So you should not be surprised. Well, that's amazing. Brand new Christians, he was there for three Sabbaths, which means three weekends, two weeks long. And one of the first things he told these new Christians was, expect to be persecuted. So it is an important thing to have in mind. If you're a Christian, 
it is very likely you're going to be persecuted. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. This week, I started teaching at his hill um, the, the gospel of Matthew, and we were looking at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, the Beatitudes in chapter 5 says, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Count it joy. Rejoice when you suffer. But why would a person suffer? Especially when the first of the Beatitudes, and I stepped through these with the students, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why would a person poor in spirit be hated? This is not a person who's down on himself and negative about himself, but this is a person who does not trust in himself. He recognizes he has no ground for being confident. He has no ground for being boastful or arrogant. This is a humble person. He rightly assesses himself and sees that he he cannot save himself and his only trust is in God. Why would a person like that be persecuted? But then as you read through the Beatitudes, and it does seem that there's a, a flow to them, an interconnectedness to each one. If you're poor in spirit, then... One of the things that comes out of that is that you will mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. All of these things are true of Jesus. And we looked at this and we saw, in what sense, Jesus was poor in spirit. We know he did nothing from his own initiative. Everything he did, he was in humble dependence upon his Father. But in what sense was Jesus mourning? Well, Jesus wasn't mourning over his condition. But he was mourning over the condition of everything around him. How could you live in this world as the perfect creator of this world and not be grieved at everything that you see every moment, everywhere around you? He mourned. And when you're poor and humble in spirit, it doesn't make you arrogant and indifferent. It brings grief to your heart because you begin to see things as they really are. Those who who mourn are also those who um, are gentle. Show me a person who has suffered Show me a person who has been through great grief, and I'll show you a person who is gentle. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. And when you are are poor and mourning and gentle, and you recognize how much is wrong in this world, it makes you hunger and thirst for righteousness. When everything around you is wrong, you go, man, God, I am not going to find any life in this world. And it makes you hunger for the things of God. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll become merciful. Because you'll recognize your own unrighteousness and your own need. And it causes you to be merciful toward others in their need. And then from that, a purity of heart is developed. Because you don't look at people for what you can get but you look at people for who they are and for what they need. That merciful heart creates a purity in heart. And in a pure heart, you want others to know Jesus. And you become a peacemaker. Peacemaker not being one who just wants the conflict to stop, but a peacemaker being one who wants the enemy 
to be reconciled to his God. You want other people to be saved. You begin to have the heart of an evangelist. There is nobody that you've ever met that you don't want that person to be in relationship with God. And out of a pure heart and a desire to see their reconciliation to God, you speak to them in love. And you go, you know, life isn't working. Have you ever considered Christ? Have you ever thought about placing your life in his hands? And you know what will happen when you do that? You will be persecuted. Blessed are those peacemakers. Blessed are those peacemakers. When you become a peacemaker, you will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And that's where Peter's going in this chapter. When you decide that life is not yours, it's his. That you've been purchased with a price and you are not your own. And you decide that you want to live humbly to the glory of the one who saved you. That your life, you want your life to be true to him because you love him, because you, you know he loves you and gave his son for you. And there's something that's been birthed in you that says, God, I want to please you. And you live your life to please him. And that something has also been birthed in you to say, God, I want to be holy. I want to be clean because you are holy and clean. And as Peter said in his first chapter, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And you go, amen. It's what I want. And you humbly before God say, God, you've saved me. I know you love me, and I love you. And I want my life to be clean and holy and righteous before you. Arm yourselves. Because you're going to suffer. And it should not surprise us. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We need to tell our children, do not be surprised that when you want Jesus and you want others to know Jesus, you will be hated and you will suffer. But we don't want our children to grow up focused on suffering, prepared for suffering, but not focused on suffering. But their heart's desire would simply be to please the one who loves them. The one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's one of a couple very difficult statements here. We know that not, suffering does not always bring an end to sin. Suffering can even actually cause sin. Read Job. Job was a righteous man in the sight of God, and, and God said to Satan, have you considered my, my servant Job? Job says, as a matter of fact, I have. Satan says, as a matter of fact, I have. He says, but you put a hedge around him. And so God gave Satan permission to move, remove the hedge. 
And then Job still didn't curse God. And Satan said, well, that's because he still has his health. Take away his health and make him suffer. He'll curse you. So God said, have at it, but don't take his life. And then Job's three friends came along, and they basically rebuked him for sin in his life. And Job says, I will cling to my integrity. One thing I know is that whatever whatever reason this happened, it has not happened because of sin. And Job was right. And after Job kept defending himself and defending himself, then another person spoke up, the youngest of all of them, and said, Job, I can't remain silent anymore. You are presenting yourself as too righteous to suffer. And that's not true. Self-righteousness crept into Job's heart, it would seem. And as one person I read one time said, Job did not suffer because he had sinned, but because of his suffering, he sinned. And he began to think that he did not deserve what was happening to him. Self-righteousness. So not all suffering causes us to cease from sin. But as we trust in the Lord in the midst of our suffering, it will have that impact. So God, I don't know why, and there's no way that I can say I do not deserve this because what I deserve is hell. And you don't have to give me an explanation. You didn't give Job one, and I'm certainly no more deserving of an explanation than he was. And it may simply be because we are good people by virtue of being in Christ, and the darkness hates the light. And it may simply be spiritual. That when the light is turned on, and the light has been turned on in each of our lives who have placed our faith in Christ, we are the light of the world. We're going to be hated. And the people who hate us may not even know why they hate us. But the darkness hates the light. And we have to entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously, even as Jesus did. And in that, the suffering will purify again and, and bring us away from sin as it becomes a motivation for turning to Christ. He who has suffered in the flesh, obviously while trusting in Jesus, has ceased from sin. 1 John is also another difficult book. And John makes statements like, the one who abides in him will not sin, can not sin. That which is born of God does not practice sin and cannot sin. That's a very emphatic statement, very absolute statement. And I believe that what John's getting at is that you cannot simultaneously abide in Christ and sin because Jesus is not a sinner. And when the Christian is, is living a life that is dependent upon Christ and giving him the freedom to live the life that he has given us, Christ lives this life. And so there will not be any sin because Christ cannot sin and does not sin. So the only way that I can have a life that is victorious over sin and free from sin 
is to totally entrust myself to the sinless one. And he will not sin. If you see sin coming out of my life, you see Charlie. You are not seeing Jesus. If you see holiness in my life, you are seeing Jesus, not Charlie. He lives his life. And when we suffer, while trusting in him who entrusted himself to the righteous one, we will not, cannot, while trusting him, sin. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, whatever time that is, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Now he's going to, in the next verse, list several examples of, of lustful, sinful living. And they're gross and they're extreme. I think we need to remember that one of the primary lusts in any person's heart because of sin is, is the lust of to, to defend yourself, the lust to satisfy yourself. And, and here it's to live the rest of our time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men. So sin is about self-gratification. It may be the gratif- gratification of not being taken advantage of. It might be the gratification of, of defending myself, the gratification of, of, of satisfying myself with all the pleasures of the world. But it comes down to, I want my way. I want my way. And it is ugly. God hates it. And we can live as we trust in Jesus the rest of the time, whatever time we have, no longer for the lust of men. And again, not all those lusts look bad, but it's the motivation behind them. I want my way. I want to be happy. I don't want to have pain. I don't want to be disliked. I don't want to be rejected. The lust of men. Why would a person suffering persecution be tempted to turn away from Christ? Because of the lust of men, the lust for approval, the lust to not be rejected. What could be wrong with wanting to be liked? When our desire for the approval of men is greater than our desire for the approval of Christ, then that desire is wrong. We are not, we do not have to live what time we have left seeking to fulfill our lust, but for the will of God. Again, Jesus didn't come into this world simply for the purpose of suffering, but he came into this world for the will of his Father. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. The time already passed is sufficient, apparently is a bit of a euphemism for it's more than enough time. You don't need any more time to live according to your lust. How much time have you had? It's enough time. Well, I became a Christian when I was six years old, you might say. You had enough time. But how much sin did I commit before I was six? More than enough, God would say. Really? When those two grandkids are three years old and two years old, they don't even know they're sinners yet. But whenever they receive Christ, hopefully it'll be even before their sixth birthday. I'll be able to tell them, 
you had more than enough time, right? (laughs) I saw it every day. It was more than enough time. But I haven't been able to do all the fun things that I see others do, what my coworkers talk about, what I see on TV. You know, it just seems like it would have been just to sow your oats. Even the Amish sow their oats. Literally, as well as figuratively. (laughs) We hear that. Those Lancaster County Amish, as well as the Amish in general, apparently, when those kids are about 17, 18 years old, the parents just remove all the restraints, and they say, do whatever your heart tells you to do. And they trust that most of those kids will come back into the fold, and most of them do. And I don't know what the reasoning is for all that, but they're wrong. Even if, you know, so you can tell your homeschool Christian kid who never did all the stuff that everybody else did, you've lived in such a way that Christ had to die for you, and even if you never did everything else that our own your friends did, you've had enough time. Turn to Jesus and turn away from your lust. Why would there, you think about it, be any appeal, especially for the things that he's listing here in verse 3? A course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. What's the appeal? Because everybody's having fun, and they're wanting you to have fun with them. And you don't want to be the one who's not having fun with everybody else who's having fun. It's amazing how we can be maligned and hated and persecuted for simply not wanting to join into somebody else's fun. Isn't it ironic? If it's just fun, then why do you hate me for not joining in with you? It makes no sense. But if we believe, and we should, that the wages of sin is death. And Paul, when he wrote that to the Romans, in Romans chapter 6, he was talking to Christians. The wages of sin is death. (coughs) And we believe that. And then we know (coughs) there is no enticement that would want us to move into what they're doing. Because even though they may look like that they're thriving now and having the fun and, and and they've got the world by the tail, it's death. It is death. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 73? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. (coughs) My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges with fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongues parade through the earth. And nothing happens. And the psalmist says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning, and nothing happens to them, the psalmist means. 
I suffer for righteousness. And they're living God-mocking lives and nothing happens. But then he says, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. It's a true story told about a farmer who was an atheist and not a God-fearing man in the least. And he plowed on Sunday and he reaped on Sunday. And in the farming community where he lived, all the other farmers, they took off work on Sunday. They took a day of rest and they went to church. And when the harvest came in one year, he had a bumper crop and had way more than any of his neighbors because he worked seven days a week. And he put an ad in the paper and, and just told everybody how much he had made and mocked those silly Christians who would not work on Sunday and think their God was going to give them as much or more. And he says, I can prove to you that I got more than you did and I worked on Sunday. Foolish Christians. Well, the Christian farmers didn't know quite how to respond to that. And they got together and they came up with a solution. And they put one small statement in the paper the next week. And it just simply said, God's harvest, God's accounting isn't in October. Meaning, there is a judgment to come. October is not the final accounting. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27. No matter how much people may seem to enjoy their sin and get away with it, and it actually look good. The accounting is not when everybody else says it is. It's when God says it is. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. You know, even if, if we never are persecuted for our faith, even if we're never laughed at and mocked as Peter's describing here, what the psalmist is saying, when I chose God and godliness, I couldn't live the way they lived. And saying yes to God is saying no to self. And that is a great form of suffering. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, take up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and come after me. There is suffering for the Christian, even if we're never persecuted. It is a life of saying yes to Jesus. And in saying yes to Jesus, we are saying no to self. And the self suffers because the self is being denied. Verse 4, in all of this, they have two responses. First, they're surprised. They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. Their lives are out of control, in other words. Excess of dissipation wild, wanton living. They are out of control. Extremely out of control. And they're surprised that you don't follow into it with them. 
They can be destroying their health because of the drugs they're doing. They can be destroying their minds, destroying their marriages, destroying their children, going through all of their wealth. Their life is in the grips of destruction, and everybody around them is being being destroyed. And yet they are surprised that you don't join them. Shortly after the last election, it was one of those early morning talk shows that I never watched, or just only saw the clip of it, where it's all these women on the panel, you know, and they're all liberals for the most part, and they are bashing our vice president because he never does an interview with a woman journalist without his wife present. And they were raking him over the coals. What do they think? He's just so appealing that we're all going to attack him? And they mocked him for seeking to preserve his marriage. Whenever he goes to to a dinner party and there's alcohol, he refuses to take a drop of alcohol unless his wife is present because he needs the accountability and he knows it. And they mocked him over that. So on the one hand, they're wanting to impeach our president because of how he's been with women. Then they turn around and mock the vice president because he's been so above board, above reproach with women. You can't win. Why don't we try? See, why don't we try to win with the world? And if you were to sit down, and we've each have had this experience, you can sit down with people and say, Are you willing to look at what your behavior is costing you? Why would you hate me for not joining with you in what you're doing? It's destroying your life and everybody around you. And I'm telling you, even if you don't even say anything about their behavior, right? People hate you simply because they know you don't do it. That's the first response is surprise. And then the second, it'd be enough if they just said, wow, I've never seen anything like this. Could you explain that to me? I'd like to know more. Happy day. Right? But they don't stop with surprise. The rest of the verse, and they malign you. They speak evil of you. It's what it means to malign. They speak evil of you. So I got to digging into this word a little bit, and the the Greek form of this word is actually the word we get blaspheme from. So I thought, well, why didn't he just translate it, they will blaspheme you? Because that's a word, apparently, Peter realizes that we typically reserve for a sin against God, right? Right? We blaspheme God. We don't blaspheme each other. We malign people. We blaspheme God. But the word here is the word for blaspheme. So then I thought, oh, I remember that time in Acts chapter 9 where Saul of Tarsus is persecuting the new believers, right? And Jesus speaks to him, shows up in a bright light, knocks him off his donkey, blinds him, and then Jesus says, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And Saul goes, who are you? 
Why would you say I'm persecuting you, Lord? You see, to persecute a Christian is to persecute Jesus, is what Jesus was saying, because of the identity that we have with him. When you persecute a Christian, you are persecuting Christ. Christ can be persecuted. Jesus in heaven can be persecuted. The risen Christ who is in heaven can be persecuted. Persecute a Christian, and you are persecuting Jesus. Malign a Christian, and you are blaspheming God. That seems to be what Peter's saying. Malign a Christian. Because Peter chose the word there that these Greek readers would have understood. Malign a Christian for his righteousness, for his walk with God, for his purity, his holiness, his desire to do the will of God, for his commitment to not live for his own flesh, but to live in surrender to Jesus. Malign him for that. And you're blaspheming God. Wow. That gives me goosebumps. No wonder we don't need to defend ourselves, right? No wonder we can trust ourselves into the hands of him who judges righteously. Because this is not just a sin against us. It's a sin against God. And God is going to have the final word. So verse 5, but they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And he's ready. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Again, difficult statement to understand what he means. Is he talking about living people who are dead spiritually, or is he talking about people who have already died? I think he may be talking about those who have already died. The gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. That statement seems to parallel again chapter 3, verse 18. Just go back and look at that quickly. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see the parallel? So now, here in verse 6 of chapter 4, that, they, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Jesus was judged in the flesh. Men judged him, and they crucified him. And for what reason? Because he was good, and the darkness hates the light. Jesus was put to death because he was good, for his righteousness, and they hated him. His life was a condemnation to their own. He was judged in the flesh by men, but made alive in the spirit. Chapter 3, verse 18. And though men may judge us and put us to death, that's okay. We are alive in the Spirit. And we will be with Him. What is the worst thing that could happen? They could kill us. And we're immediately in the presence of God. Who's going to complain? <laughs> really? Oh, bummer. <laughs> no. I mean, it's not that we shouldn't look forward to martyrdom, but neither should we fear it. We will be in the presence of God. See, I think this is what Peter's getting at. People who are being martyred and, and can only anticipate that it's very likely they'd be martyred for their faith. 
And Peter's saying, man, be encouraged. Arm yourselves with the same purpose that Jesus had, which was to do the will of God, even if it meant suffering. And even should you be judged in the flesh as men, you will live in the Spirit. You will be with the Lord. According to, and he comes back to it again, the will of God. So I really think the controlling point of this paragraph is not suffering, but it's the will of God. And when we seek the will of God, we may, in fact, and probably will suffer, at least in the denial of self, and very likely at other people hating us, despising us, maligning us, but that's okay. Judged in the flesh by men, made alive in the spirit by God. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, again, just thank you for your practical words to us. So many people think that Christianity is just a head in the sand or, or eyes on the clouds type of faith, and it is anything but that. You are honest and real with us through your word. And you speak to exactly where we live. Nobody wants to be persecuted. Nobody wants to be hated. We don't take pleasure in being maligned. But God, we thank you that we can entrust ourselves to you, the righteous judge, even as Jesus did in everything that happens. I do pray, though, that Jesus would be truly sanctified as Lord in our hearts. And that we would be prepared, God, arming ourselves with the purpose, intentional in understanding that if this is what you have for us, then your will is good, acceptable, and perfect, and we will accept your will. And that we wouldn't cower in fear, nor would we just want to lash back at anyone who, who pokes at us, but God, that we would just walk humbly with you and gratefully accept whatever you would bring our way. We do want to live righteously, Lord, in that, in that place of dependence upon you where our hearts and lives, our hands are clean before you, God, and that when we suffer, that it would truly be for righteousness' sake and not because we have lived in a way that is unworthy of you. But we thank you, God, that you are the righteous judge and that we will never be disappointed for placing our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.